Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Northampton Chronicles podcast. My name is Max Miller and I'm, today I'm joined by Jack Pinnock Hello. and Isaac Warrington Hi there. for this week's edition. And today's guest was Isabel Berwick, who is the commissioning editor of the Financial Times. Here is a bit about her and how, how she got to where she is. I have been a journalist for 30 years this year. I started out, I went to Oxford University. I am a posh white woman. Back in the day, those are the kind of people that went into journalism. I'm really pleased to say it's really changing. Um, after university, I went to the London College of Printing and did a three-month uh, graduate magazine journalism course, which is quite skimpy and not at all like what you're doing here. I then applied for 75 jobs. I got no interviews. It was in the middle of a downturn. Uh, and eventually, after about another 25 letters, I almost gave up. I got a graduate traineeship at a trade publisher called Haymarket. They published titles like campaign, marketing, sort of the industry titles. And back in the day, that was a massive business. That was a really common way for people to start out in journalism. So I worked on titles aimed at family doctors for about four years. I reported on how GPs ran their businesses, how they coped with difficult patients. Uh, it was I, it wasn't like a news training on a general newspaper, it was quite specialised, but I did learn a lot about finance and that has sort of, that took me on to the next part of my career. I worked as a personal finance journalist, first on a magazine and then a, a now defunct newspaper called The Independent on Sunday and then in 1999 at the height of the dot-com bubble I went to the FT and I reported on personal finance, so mortgages, pensions, all that kind of sexy stuff. And then I moved on to culture, so I've done books, I've done uh, interviews with quite big celebrities. We have a slot called Lunch with the FT, which is quite a famous interview slot. It's been running for about 20, 25 years, so I edited that for some time. And I did some interviews, for example, I interviewed George R. R. Martin, who from Game of Thrones. Uh, I'm a big fan, that was a huge thrill. And then uh, I eventually moved on to op-ed. Uh, the opinion and analysis pages, which is where kind of world leaders, politicians, people with an axe to grind, business leaders, send us in what they think about a topic and we edit it and publish it. Uh, so I worked there for three years. That's probably the most exciting job I'd had up to that point because you're in contact with some really amazing and quite difficult people actually. And then about a year ago I took over as editor of Work and Careers, which is essentially where our, we as people meet work and business. So it covers things like leadership, management, the future of work, which is kind of of uh, relevance to you, uh, and also things like office politics, how to get on with that really difficult colleague, uh, and how to make your way in the workplace, you know, how to be a good intern, how to be a good graduate trainee, all that stuff. It's fascinating. So it's quite an interesting background she's come from and has clearly worked quite hard to get to where she is. And, you know, fair play to her for doing so. Uh, just as a bit of a reference, we're third year journalists that are a good maybe three, four months away from graduation. And for me, she made a really good point of having to deal with all sorts of people in the workplace and not everyone you meet you're going to get on with. Jack, Isaac, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, she makes a very good point, actually. Um, I think we've probably even noticed that from our short times in the workplace doing work experience. Um, in between our years here at uni and it's something that I'm sure we'll notice going forward but I think what one of the really kind of inspiring things that she told us about her career there is how she started how kind of small she started to where she is now she's in kind of a high position job 
at a leading news, a national newspaper. Um, and for people like us who are just about to get go on the first rung of the ladder in, in terms of workplace, it's kind of inspiring to see how far you can go on there um, from starting small. Yeah, it's definitely inspiring, like you said, Jack, um, because we've just come out of some work experience and like Max said, we're coming into the job market very soon. So it's been very interesting to get a look into that process and because obviously in journalism, it's a lot of climbing the ranks over the years, you know, intern to reporter to editor. And to see someone come to us with a real success story like that, you know, it shows that it's not something that, that just happens to other people. You know, we can do it, they can do it, anyone can do it if you put the time and the effort into it, which he clearly has. Because we spent a lot of time um, at local placements, as we've said, so I won't name the newspaper that we've all worked for. We all spent a week there and we all had different, almost like experiences, if you might say so. Isaac, you're the editor for the newspaper wasn't there for the week that you for your time. Yeah. Me and Jack had the editor there probably for more he was there for most of the week but sometimes he was gone. Uh, I think Jack your editor left probably for 2 days before yeah. your placement finished. Mm-hmm. Um and there there's just some of the experiences that you can have in local journalism, I think. Would you guys tend to agree with that? Um, definitely, yeah, because as you mentioned, we've all been to the same newspaper and obviously it'd be better if the editor was there, but <laughs> when, you, you're in that, when you're actually in the environment and you can see what the editor does in the day-to-day and what the reporters do in the day-to-day, it really takes away a lot of the, the mystery of it, which in a good way, because you can see that it's not all about going straight to editor, it's about saying, all right, I can start by doing this and if I put a little bit more work into it, after a couple more years, I can be this and then I can go to this and then just keep climbing the ladder. And it, it's, it's really good to get into that environment in the first place. So you don't only get your foot in the door with that particular organization because they'll know your name coming back, but you can really see how it works and tailor that to your own skill set. That leads on to our next point pretty well, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Um, she made a really good point of how, because she is the commissioning editor at the Financial Times, and how part of her job is paying feature, paying people to... Uh, write features for the Financial Times and she gave some really good advice on how to pitch a feature. Uh, Here's what she said. Uh, What is a good pitch? Uh, Something that is not too short and not too long that says in one sentence what the story is going to be about, how AI is, you know, how disabled people might lose out in the workplace because of AI and also if there's a why am I reading this now? Lots of people pitch stuff to me that is like Oh, I read this survey, and actually this is my experience of, you know, I got, you know, and you just kind of think, why am I reading this now? Is there a compelling reason? It doesn't have to be, why am I reading this now? I'm not madly topical, but generally, if it's been in the news, I've already seen it, and we've already written about it. So, and also something quirky, something that I won't have commissioned myself. So, so many of these students in the next few years will maybe working as freelancers. Yes. What's the best way to pitch? You certainly don't write it all first, do you? Because you wasted your no, time. No, don't waste it. your time. Uh, I would probably send about a power, probably 100 to 150 words would be ideal. No more. Any more than that, start, you start to have written the feature. And if I don't know you, or if you don't know the commissioning editor you're pitching to, uh, put the pitch at the top and then at the bottom a couple of lines about yourself and links to your work. Um, you've probably all got your own websites or places where commissioning editors can see stuff that you've done already. That's the main thing. If it's someone that I don't know, I'll probably have a look at their work 
uh, I might get in touch with people. They've, if I, it's a fairly small commissioning pool in the kind of world I'm in. I'll try and get in touch with people who've commissioned people. But, you know, I wouldn't be discouraged from commission, uh, writing to people you don't know because I've found some really interesting new voices that way. Um, the other way I find new writers is interns who come into the FT often pitch me. And I think that's a really good thing to do. So wherever you go on your internships, go and pitch. You know, make the most of it. Because then there is nothing better than a face-to-face -face contact with someone. And I, I get about probably three or four hundred emails a day. I quite often don't get to freelancers. So if you don't hear back from a commissioning editor, follow up. In fact, you did this when I mm. think I was a bit delayed in answering your emails. Just resend it with a, uh, sorry, you know, uh, just wondering if you'd got to this. I'd be really keen to get a reply so I can pitch it elsewhere if you're not interested. That's not rude. You're just asking the commissioning editor to come back to you. And that's a perfectly okay thing to do. Don't just sit there hanging because they're commissioning editors are really busy and it's nothing personal. But you will get an answer if you send it again. It reactivates it in your mind. How important is it that they find out who your name and don't get it to whom it may concern? Oh, I wouldn't commission exactly. it. No, I don't commission anyone who makes spelling mistakes in their pitch, and I don't commission anyone who gets their name wrong. They need to find out your name. I get quite a lot of pitches saying that think I work at the Times, so really? those go in the bin. But you know, I mean, it's kind of basic, and actually, it's quite easy now with the internet to find people. Um, I mean, the FT is probably harder because we're behind a paywall, but there are plenty of ways you can go around the back of that, social media, for example. Uh, and if, you off, you know, if people's DMs are open, that's another way in. You may not get an answer, but it's a, you know, I've had plenty of approaches that way, and I don't object to it. And it doesn't hurt that what's interesting, what Isabel says there, is that spelling mistakes. So that email, you've got to look over as sharply as if you were looking over a 2,000 word feature, looking for every spelling mistake, because it is like turning up, you know, to a wedding with you, with you tie out of place. If there's a spelling mistake, Isabel's thinking, not sure about this person, and, and you've lost your chance just by not that last check. It is true. It's it's it, it, I mean, I can't say that I can't pretend that all the journalists who write at the Financial Times are, you know, sending me copy that is has got no spelling mistakes in it. But it, it, a first impression is really important because it goes to the kind of care you take as a person. So the other voice you would have heard there was our lecturer Adrian. Um, so what I learned from that part was that when you're pitching to an editor, you've got to have the right approach. Uh, when pitching a story, and not to give the game away when you know when you're writing about a certain topic, especially if it's something that you're passionate about, so that editors don't steal the story and assign it to another journalist they are working for, because that can quite easily happen. Jack, Isaac, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's uh, it's something we've spoken about from a few Chronicles talkers in this series that if you have got a great idea for a feature, do not just send in the feature. Don't give it to them for free. Obviously, you've got to outline what you want to talk about in it and how strong it might be, but you're, they're the one that one needs something from you. They want something that you've got. So, um, yeah, give them a little sneak preview, but don't don't give the whole game away. You they want you want to get paid at the end of the day. That's the ultimate uh, goal, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely interesting because, like you've mentioned, we've had quite a few Chronicles talkers, some of which were, were actually freelancers themselves. And 
you know, the message really hits you a lot harder when you, you hear the same thing coming from people who have been in a variety of backgrounds. You know, someone from the Financial Times today and only a couple of weeks ago, someone from a, a local newspaper. So it's definitely important, as, a, as especially a young newcomer to the journalism industry, to really have some wits about you. You know, you've got to be a negotiator. It's all about, it's all about learning how you interact with these people. You know, for, I mean, finding out who they are, obviously, first of all, is very important. But then once you get there, it's all about being able to make a good first impression. Oh, yeah, 100%. Because, as she said, contacting people is probably the easiest part. But making sure they get back to you and, again, making that first impression is probably the harder part. Um, so if, let's just say, we sent off a, an idea for a feature and you know you probably don't hear anything back after a couple of days you might think you know have they actually read the email are they interested in the pitch and probably perhaps just throwing it in the bin yeah because if you don't hear back it can be easy um, as a first-time journalist to really think oh they don't like it they rejected it but the, the truth is these are these are very busy people especially someone at the Financial Times they they'll be they'll be looking for emails all day um, and they got other things to do so if you don't hear back Best case scenario, really, just just keep at it, message them back. You know, like like she says, and and yeah. what she said. As long as you're polite, yep. And you're and you're replying back to them. There's um, nothing rude about that. I'm sure she gets hundreds of emails each day. Mm. And we haven't really done much in the wake of feature writing. We obviously the bit of a throwback to our first year as student journalists. Uh, for example, my first ever feature was on graffiti and whether it's an art or crime uh, somehow managed to get a good grade for that but I think we never really had the chance to we haven't really had that learning experience of having to pitch ideas maybe we've had gone up to probably people on a work placement and said oh you know what do you think of this idea but it's not really the same is it because well, a work placement it's a lot more about pitching yourself than a piece of work you've done mm. particularly so no we haven't really done an awful lot of features so I think, you know, I think another part she made quite obvious was the spelling errors. Um, but for me, I'm quite prone to making spelling errors. Um, in fact, I was labelled as a common nerd in the first year because of the amount of times I made spelling mistakes. So, but f for me, if I was to become a freelancer, I probably would struggle with, you know, sending off emails because I, um, for a pitch idea, I would struggle. I don't know whether that's the same for you guys, would it? Well, I mean, we're not all blessed like me with the ability to use semicolons perfectly. But I've I've always I've always really liked the writing element. But it's always it's always when you get very confident that you're you're prone to make a mistake. If you think you've got it completely under control, you know, you're going to you might rush to the email. You might just think you can bang it out on your phone and that's that's when you're going to make an error. So I think you you can't ever just rest on your laurels here and just say, oh, well, I've got it down. You know, you've always got to scrutinise yourself. You've always got to reread what you've said and reread it again because you probably missed something. And just leading on to the next part, um, I was very proud of that feature that I wrote in the first year. Uh, like I said, somehow managing to get a, an A grade for it. And here is what uh, Isabel said about her best pitch for a feature during her time working at the Financial Times. Oh, actually, I'll tell you, I had one really recently that I thought was brilliant and it worked out really well. We had an intern who was a young black woman and she pitched me on uh, the issue of black women's hair in the workplace. That is not something the FT has ever touched before. And it was a really interesting and uh, personal piece 
And I, so I, that's the best one I've had recently. It did amazingly well online. It's been shared all over the world. Um, so I think that one combined something, an experience that was peculiar to her. I mean, it was her experience of being a black woman in the workplace. Then she widened it out to talk about the cultural expectations of black women's hair and the mistakes that white colleagues might make in that area. She got some quotes from experts and anthropologists and a woman who'd written a book about it. So that was essentially a kind of unusual and essentially perfect pitch. So it's of the moment, it's personal, and it's saying something that we might not normally hear. So after hearing that, I think the Financial Times are always after more in-depth stories. I think this might sound a bit daft on my end, but I always thought you know, that would be the last thing the Financial Times are after. I just thought it was always about business news. So to hear about them talking about hair, of all things, was quite surprising and that the Financial Times is not just is, is after different stories and are quite keen to raise the profile of those stories. Jack, Isaac, what are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. When most people think of the FT, they don't associate it with kind of um, lighter stories in a sense. Um, they, it's normally associated with that kind of hard news, business kind of thing. So to hear a story so personal in there, I'm I not surprised why it did well at all. And it's normally the way where a, a story that is personal to the writer um, is produced that it, it does resonate well with audiences and I think that's definitely been the case with this one. Yeah, you hear about it, well we've heard about it today and you hear about it in other Chronicles talks, how the face of journalism is really changing these days, you know, the times are changing. If you pardon the pun. <laughs> and, and so when you, when you hear someone like that today talk about how you don't need to talk about finance on the Financial Times. You can talk about something that you know, something that's affected you personally. It's really quite, it's quite, it's very encouraging for young journalists and it's quite empowering if you've got an issue that you really feel has affected you and that you really want to see be given publicity to then see a real, a real media outlet like the Financial Times take interest. It really shows that you can go anywhere with the right, the right encouragement, the right interests. So obviously you mentioned there, you know, your strengths and that is you could argue what the girl who's, who pitched that idea you could say that is her strength isn't it and here's what Isabel also had to say on writing to your strengths writing what you know is important so a lot of especially when you're starting out you know if you're not giving me uh, a context you know if you haven't got experience and context I don't know where you're coming from I would stick to what you know or something you have direct experience of. So I get, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is being too ambitious with the pitch. So, you know, I intend to talk to, uh, you know, the heads of four universities and a CEO of a FTSE 100 company to discuss mental health in the workplace. No, I don't think you are. Do you, you know what I mean? So uh, I have... Um, struggled with anxiety and depression at work and I've set up a mentoring network for my peers and we've bought it we've got in this expert who's come to help us and now we're rolling out our program across the whole company and I've got venture capital funding to set up an app you know that is more interesting so this might sound daft but I always thought that it was rule 101 of writing for journalism is that you write something you're passionate about so, for example, my interest is football, but over the course of the last three years, my perceptions have changed drastically. So I now have an interest in rugby, politics and crime, which are just a few of the examples I've 
some of the things I've learned how to write about during my time at university. Would you guys agree with that? Or would you... Would, have you yeah, guys... I, I definitely think when you're at, when you, even when you come into university, you have your own strengths and you have your own interests. And over, that, over the three years, I mean, I've definitely seen my interests change and evolve. Uh, for example, I really like crime reporting. I really like war correspondency, that sort of thing. And I think that's what, that's what you need in journalism. You need your own specialty. You need your own strengths that you can play to. Because if you try and be an all-rounder, that market's full. There's, there's going to be a, a thousand of people out there trying to get what you are. But if you pick what you like and what you are good at and what you have passion for, that's going to narrow down the pool significantly. And you go somewhere like Financial Times and you, you come in with that passion and you say, I want to do this, I want to talk about this, and you play to your own strengths, you can really, you can really go somewhere. And I think that's what Isabel has said today. I 100% agree. Um, you think when you've got a specialist subject your work that you're doing around that subject is naturally going to be better than anything else because it's what you're good at it's what you know and you see with the story we spoke about a minute ago she used her, her specialist to um to get into the financial times which is a door she probably wouldn't have thought would have been opened by the financial times and you can get into places where you wouldn't have thought about it by using your specialism and we've all got different specialisms here and the people we they're on our course and the same can be said for us lot you pl- you write and, and produce stuff to the, what you know best, and it's definitely the way forward. Because mm, Isaac, as you said, you know you've had you've got your interests, and Jack, you've got your interests. But would you say that it's worth perhaps expanding out of uh, like those interests? Would you perhaps be willing to step out of your comfort zone into something that you wouldn't really normally cover? Well, I'd say to a degree. Um, obviously, we're a multimedia course. So we all have, we don't have one strength. We have a lot of strengths. We can edit, we can film, we can write, we can talk. And I think to a degree, it's important to keep, don't let any of the abilities fall behind. So certainly don't, make sure you've got your weaknesses covered, but play to your strengths. Make sure that that you really, you come in with that, with that strength because you can grow, you can definitely go further but if you come to the Financial Times and you look at it as if I have to do something about finance and you come at that even slightly below par they've, they've got someone who can do it better than you so don't be afraid to come at, some, come at them with something a little bit different because you might not think it's what they want but it, it could be it, and it probably will be We're also in an industry with a very crowded job market so if you're, say, your specialist is something niche where there isn't many jobs going for it, if you can get your foot in the door another way, talking about something else, I'm not saying go and learn something completely random to get in as a specialist, but if you can get your door in something else, then you can move in uh, sideways through businesses. So to think of the BBC, if you want to do some niche sport correspondent, if you get in as a general reporter, then you can move your way through. So whilst it is good to talk about your specialist and be strong on it, then but there's also other ways to get there, I suppose. Mm. Now, obviously, with journalism there are quite a lot of stories that have impacted us and you know and there are stories that impact the general public uh here's the story that has impacted isabel the most it's quite a long time i've got there's a couple there was one a very long time ago i um my son nearly died when he was a toddler he collapsed with meningitis and was on a ventilator for two weeks and after that i learned a lot about sort of catastrophic illness in children and wrote about it in the FT. And, you know, number one, it was cathartic for me as a mother 
to write about it. And I think that's something we perhaps underestimate as journalists when we're bringing our own personal experience to what we, what we do. Uh, it often connect, you know, connection with the readers is a huge thing. So I had some wonderful emails and letters after I wrote that from people who'd been through similar experiences. And it was really helpful to me. And also I think I wrote quite a helpful piece about how to spot the signs of catastrophic illness in your child, you know, which I hadn't been aware of. Uh, and, you know, my child almost died. So that was, that was a piece, a very personal piece, but in a, on a sort of macro level, I guess probably when I used to answer the reader's questions on personal finance, which sounds really mundane, but you're really helping people's lives. So people would write in with these terrible financial problems or terrible family crises, and I would work with experts to unpick them, essentially, in a way that was free and accessible and helpful. And, and, the, and knowing that you've changed somebody's life, even in that small, unflashy way, is, is really very reward, rewarding. So that was a very traumatic event to have happened to you during her lifetime. Uh, and touch wood, it never happens to us or anyone else. But it is good to see that she overcame it and found it therapeutic that like when she wrote about it later on. And unfortunately, that can be the world of journalism, can't it? We have covered stories that can be sad or graphic to an extent. You know, we, we've covered inquests, been to court, and seen the effects of council cuts, which is the bad side of journalism, isn't it? Absolutely, Max. And you talk there about um, going to court and things, and I suppose when you get older and you're more experienced in it, you do kind of desensitise a little bit. But where she's talking about something so personal happening in her family that it's always going to affect how the rest of your life is, not just in journalism. So the fact that she's taken that and can now almost specialise in another, another area of her work is really quite inspiring. Yeah, I mean, because at this point, like we've heard, we've been to to inquest, and it's it's rough. You'll be up against some rough stuff going up into a into a room and hearing a, a coroner talk about quite quite graphic ways in which stuff has happened. And there's death knocks as well, and even then, like Max mentioned, more more simple stuff like council cuts, and it can be easy to look at things like that and get desensitized. But at the end of the day, you remember that there's a lot of people being affected by these things in in really serious ways. And that's always going to happen to you as a journalist. You're always going to be up against things like this. So I think being able to turn that from a weakness into a strength is very important. And I think it's very inspiring to see someone like our speaker today mention that. And obviously, you want to be a war correspondent, don't you? Yeah. You, do you feel like if you were to perhaps go out to the next war zone, do you th think that some of the stuff you've covered here in Northampton during your time at university would prepare you for, or? or I think in, in some ways, yeah. I mean, obviously nothing can, can properly prepare you for, uh, um, but I think the, the general lessons you get at university on a course like this are things you can definitely apply to not even just journalism, to, to just careers in general, because it helps you know, you know, because you don't know until you go into an inquest how your response is gonna be. And I think at the, in the moment, you're, you're quite shocked. But then, you know, you go out there and 10 minutes later, you're back to normal. And I think it's a, it's a pretty sobering experience because you realize these things do affect you and it's all right to let them affect you. But it's also good to, to be able to separate that and to say, well, it's happened. How can I make, it sounds bad, but how can I make the best out of this? Because it's a death. It's 
someone's loved family member has died or has been very close to death. But as a journalist, it's your job to to make something positive out of that. Mm, because uh, I'm not sure about, you know, going back to that local placement that we did, I covered a few inquests with them. I don't know if you guys did. Um, and there were quite a few there that were, you know, quite graphic and it was quite, you know, and, and you see the human element, you know, to it when you go to an inquest. Um, you know, the family are there, you know, the family are always in tears and w one that I went to that wasn't with this particular newspaper, this was part of the uh, our law assignment, which was, you know, you had to write a, a, a something like a 500 word inquest or something like that. Um, and a guy had um, been killed in a road accident and hearing the, the almost like the, the build up to this man's death and the you know the subsequent impact you know the people who witnessed it the person who who hit him yeah really it really puts you when you hear the lead up it really puts you in in the position it makes you feel like you were there you're those you're in this person's last hours in their last minutes and i think i can't even imagine you know we've just been doing this for, for nearly three years now i can't imagine what it would be like to to have something like that happen to a loved one like, like I guess something similar, like a, a very impactful personal moment, and to be able to turn that into a story. Because mm, that, for me, that inquest was my personal, uh, the, the story that affected me the most. You know, going through that because I've been to inquest before, and it was suicides or, you know, more natural causes of death. You know, so cancer or something like that. But, you know, having covered that one, I came away with that one, and I thought, wow, you know, this can be a horrible thing to cover but you have to cover it it's it, you know you I can't mean, someone has to you, you can't turn around to your editor and say well no i can't go to a an inquest you know you you don't really get a choice in it you have to go to it and you have to and sometimes you can see some of the positives out of it unfortunately in uh, something because if you speak to someone you you see that human element and they'll sometimes they might give you the the personal side of who they were before they died um which is you know jack we covered an inquest on a german prince yeah earlier, that was interesting earlier this year and th that one was quite uh, an eye-opener that one almost to, to a degree wasn't it yeah seeing all his family there who it, obviously his, his death was so sudden and tragic um in the nature of it all he was young and everything and seeing all his family there it, it's like you said earlier it it definitely opened your eyes as to um, the serious nature of some of the stuff you can be reporting and how um, careful you have to be with what you're talking about to make sure the family are, are okay with everything that's going on. And you're definitely right in what you've said, what you've said there. Anyway, that is all from us this week. I've been Max Miller. I've been Jack Pinnock. And I, as always, am Isaac Warrington. And next week, we'll have a busy week with Changing Futures Week with lots of guest speakers coming your way. Tune in next week to find out more.